0: Good morning. As Brad said, my name is Joshua Bowditch, and I will be preaching today. Um, our passage is going to be Luke six twenty-seven through 36. It's about loving your enemies. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, and we're going to jump right in. Um, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Father, I thank you for giving us the breath in our lungs. I thank you for bringing us together here in your name so we can learn from you about how we ought to live. Today's text is difficult. It asks us to love like you do. And to love people who are the last we want to love. So we pray that you would help us to understand your truth. Help us to listen and understand who you are and what you will do. Who we are and what we should do to love our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. Love your enemies. What a profound teaching from Jesus. Uh, But what does it really mean? When we leave these holy pages and we think about the enemies in our lives, Uh, an enemy is defined as a foe, an adversary, an enemy who hates another and wishes them injury or attempts to do them harm, Uh, who contradicts and fights all to gratify their own malice or ill will. Basically modern-day haters. Um, Now, there are public enemies that belong to a nation or a party at war with each other. An example from a United States perspective, that'd be Germany in World Wars I and II, Russia in the Cold War, and today in the Ukraine War of 2022, that's what I'm calling it. Uh, still, focusing on individuals can crystallize our feelings and actions towards these enemies. Adolf Hitler. Vladimir Putin. The Ku Klux Klan. Even saying their names can understandably invoke anger and contempt in your heart for what they believed and what they did. But what about your private enemies, like your old boss who would constantly critique you, not lift a finger to help, take all the credit for your work, and then, when it became convenient for you for them, push you out of the company. Or that old boyfriend or girlfriend, they inflicted such wounds on your heart, didn't they? In fact, even hearing their name quickens your pulse and can set your teeth on edge. And yet Jesus commands us to love them. Can we be real with each other today? Uh, I'll go first. Uh, Often I carry such bitterness and contempt for public and private enemies that I go to great lengths to avoid thinking about them. I avoid reading the news. I unfollow people <laughs> on LinkedIn so they don't have to see their successes or any updates for that matter. Uh, and being really honest, I'll even use stories about my personal enemies with my current clients as a cautionary tales about how not to be an idiot with their business processes. Um, how about you? You know, Who are your enemies? What comes to mind when you consider loving them. And so if this is your first time at SOMA hearing this happen in a sermon, this is like not a rhetorical question. This is a moment to engage together and discuss. So based on the definitions you've heard so far, you know sometimes we think about enemies. I don't have enemies. I'm just living my job, paying my bills. Um, but now that we've gone through those definitions, how about you? You know Who comes to mind? You don't have to name names, but you can reference them categorically if, you, if you'd like. Hmm. Retribution, yeah. but not like general retribution. They want them to feel the specific pain that you felt. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Anybody else? No enemies here? No one has enemies? Anyone? (laughs) Huh? Your former boss? What'd they do? (laughs) Are they in LA? Where are my keys? Just kidding. Yeah. i think that also a lot of what I appreciate that. I appreciate you being honest. I'm not the only one. Um, yeah, that's so real. I think there's probably a business opportunity just to counsel Employees, right, and just to like help them walk through that story of it wasn't your fault, that wasn't your fault, kind of Goodwill Hunting style. Um, so, for the rest of you, I would like for you to, you know, pick one enemy, a personal enemy, uh, and just keep them in the back of your mind as we go through our sermon today. So, if you search your heart, are you ready to love them as Jesus commands? Um, If our Lord commands it, we need to do it. But how? How do we change so that we can actually do this? Now, as Brad preached on last week, uh, today's passage is called the Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew. It was most likely one of Jesus' greatest hits, and he delivered it to audiences across many venues. Hey, it was new to the audience each time it was heard, right? Why, Why mix it up? Um... But today's text is hard, given the expectation laid for us by our Lord. So in verses 27 and 28, Jesus lays out the standard for how we should treat our enemies. We are to love them and repay evil, not with detached neutrality, but with goodness. Goodness. I don't know about you, but thinking about those men we saw earlier and my private enemies, a lot of things come to mind. Not love. But if you look at verse 38, he's calling us to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who abuse us. Imagine sitting there in your quiet time thinking of your enemy and pleading before God, praying for them. That's what we're called to. And there isn't some esoteric or nuanced interpretation of this passage that will allow Christians to sidestep obedience in this command. Uh, I looked. It <laughs> doesn't exist. Jesus is telling his listeners in plain language to love their enemies. Now, when we think about love, this is the verb of action, not the noun of feeling. Uh, Jesus isn't saying to start sending love notes to your enemies, uh, to pine for them, to giggle when you think about them. What he's calling us to is to actually to live out that Bible passage made famous by weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is the standard that Jesus is calling us to. And it feels heavy, not impossible, right? How are we supposed to do that? But wait, there's more. Uh, It ain't new. Uh, Since the Old Testament, God has called his people to love their enemies and do good to them. Don't believe me? I have a few verses for you. So this is from Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's donkey or ox wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, just picture yourself, that's my enemy's donkey, fallen under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Could you imagine seeing your enemy who's wounded you on the side of the tent with a car broken down, tears streaming down their face, grease on their hands? And God calls you to pull over and help them get back in the car, get them gone their way. Or Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. I don't know how you're feeling right now after hearing all this. But in preparing for this sermon, I had a question. God, why do we have to go all the way to love our enemies? Why can't we just stop at not hate? What about just neutral? Uh, Well, there's two reasons, really. Uh, The first one is called common grace. It is a term uh, Bible nerds love. But God articulated his standard to humanity through Israel, um, teaching them that they should be kind and loving to all. And we can see this in the latter half of the Ten Commandments. You know, honor your father and mother, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, nor coveting. General principles all humans should live under. Uh, these commands certainly honor God. But again, we're talking about the common grace, right? Um, but they're also good for human society, like humans benefit. Uh, I mean, each of us loves not being murdered and lied to, right? right? So we're all under the benefits of this common grace. Um, and this is what God wants for his creation. Now, here are some definitions just to help us along with common grace as a concept from a few theologians. One is Charles Hodge. And so he defines it by looking at it through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit, as the spirit of truth, of holiness, and of life in all its forms, right? This is the Holy Spirit, is present with every human mind, saved and unsaved, believer and not, right? Enforcing truth, restraining evil, exciting to good, And imparting wisdom or strength when, where, and in what measure seemeth to him good. That means the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of all people, not just those who believe in Jesus. Uh, Theologian John Murray talks about it this way Common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree, falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. You know, this is most easily seen in Matthew 5, 45, uh, which says that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends the reins on the just and the unjust, right? This is the common grace of God. Uh, secondly, the second reason, God's standard of love. So God is a perfect being. So it follows that his standard of love is perfect and can't be lowered to a standard below his character, right? Uh, As we saw earlier in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, God's definition of loving action is pretty easy to articulate. So uh, next, you know, Christians, we should love our enemies because God is this way, right? So you see that in verse 35 and 36, Christians are the children of God. This biblical concept means we are the sons and daughters of God, and as such, we should be loving and gracious and generous, again, even with our enemies, just like our Father in heaven. We are adopted into the family of God through the death of Christ on the cross. We are children of God, and now we should walk in love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, this is the very purpose of sanctification, right? To grow in likeness to the Lord. While we serve him here on earth, our Christian life is designed to shape and mold us into reproducing godliness as modeled by the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We are his image bearers, and we have been recreated through that new birth. So Romans 8 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, we're being adopted into a family. Second Corinthians three eighteen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So again, we're saved, we're adopted, and now we're being shaped into the image of our Lord. Now for me, I really love movies, like a lot. Um, Like if Danielle and the kids are gone for the day, I could grab snacks and watch stories unfold all day long. Uh, yes, bathroom breaks and such, but still, movies. Um, while Lord of the Rings is far and away my number one, um, there are a few others we could talk about. Have you heard the expression, going native? Uh, it's the idea that you spend so much time in a culture different than yours that you begin to look, sound, and live like them. By the way, these movies are going to a spoil, or at least 13 years old. You've had your time. Um, So take Avatar, for example, you know, 10 foot tall, blue people, space marines, massive special effects budget, James Cameron, right? Uh, So in this story, there's a paraplegic marine named Jake Sully, and he impersonates one of the Na'vi, these giant blue creatures, learns their ways, again, he starts here, he's a marine, learns their ways, joins the tribe, marries the princess, and then fights his former people for the sake of his new family quite the change, quite the transformation. Or this movie, The Last Samurai. and this one, this movie, that one, you have a former, is 1876, former U.S. Army Captain Nathan Algren. He's actually commissioned to go and destroy the stodgy samurai who are stuck in their traditional ways and they don't want Japan to become commercialized and ruined, pesky samurai. Um, but through certain events... You know, Captain Algren joins his samurai captors in the samurai lifestyle, learning to live, speak, and fight as a Japanese samurai. He even marries the symbolic princess in this story. Her name is Taka. She's actually the sister of the leader of the samurai. He saves the leader of the samurai's life. He fights his former people for the sake of his new family, the samurai. You can play this out again and again. Dances with Wolves, Pocahontas, Fern Gully. Uh, It's a lot of fun. Just plot them out at home and go, wait, this is the same story with different characters. Uh, But in each of these stories, the protagonist is taken, reformed through immersion, and a growing appreciation for the ways of their captors, and then begins to live as one of them, working to further the goals of their new community, even working against the purposes of their former community. That is what it's like walking with God as, as his children, As we come to know him more by learning of his character and his actions, we become more like him. Then, instead of behaving as our former community does, repaying evil for evil, expecting to to be repaid for our our lending, uh, we live out our new identity, repaying evil with good. Now, this again is God's design for humanity. We are his image bearers. You know, why do you think these stories resonate with you so easily in your heart? You are meant to become something greater than you are today. It's here. God is calling you to live like him. And that includes loving your enemies the way God does. Okay, so what about your enemies, though, and their sins against you, right? Your heart may still be crying out, what happens to them? What about justice? I have good news. God is loving, and yet he doesn't simply overlook the evil that's done to you. So if you look at verses 29 through 31, this is teaching us to not seek revenge or try to protect your rights, right? It says, don't try to get your money back. Don't try to get your cloak back. Let people just take your stuff. Now, God is perfectly content with you seeking to protect yourself with criminal or civil matters through another common grace, the legal system of your country, Right, uh, he, but he doesn't want you seeking revenge for your personal wounds. That belongs to him. Now, first things first. God is not f- the flat, simple God of some people's conceptions. He is the most intelligent being, and he is able to do two complex things at one time. He can constrain evil and mete out initial punishment for sin through the legal system that he allows to exist by common grace, as we see in Romans 13:1 through 5. And yet, he will deal with all evil personally and ultimately. So you can see here in Romans 12, behind me, um, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm willing to bet God's plan for retribution will be more just and perfect than mine. My job is to love. He will handle the vengeance. He will meet out the right amount and type in the timing perfect to punish sin. Because remember, as man looks on the outside, but God searches the heart, He knows the appropriate amount. Uh, to to properly punish. And by the way, he has plenty of options for dispensing his wrath. Uh, Eternal wrath, as in hell. Eschatological wrath, the final day of the Lord, different sermon. Uh, Cataclysmic wrath, think the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Consequential wrath, this one's alive and well today. This is the principle of sowing and reaping, right? So an example would be, you're lying in your business deals which leads to the loss of personal and business relationships, fines, and incarceration, right? Just natural consequences, unless you're a politician. But God has options even for them. Uh, The wrath, and finally, the wrath of abandonment. So you see this in Romans 1, 24 through 26. This is where God removes that common grace, that restraint, and actually lets people fully indulge in their sin and the destruction that sin wreaks on their lives, that is the wrath of God. Now that you see what God may do, are you gonna pursue your form of judgment on your enemies or defer to God's divine vengeance? Okay, <coughs> movie time again. Have you seen Pulp Fiction, Tarantino flick? It's uh, not for the kids, uh, but there's this great scene with a quote by a character, Jules Winnefeld. It's played by Samuel Jackson. It's actually based on Ezekiel 25, verse 17, and I think it illustrates a measure of the intensity of God's wrath towards sin. So the character Jules has found the object of his wrath, this guy who has done his boss wrong, and he's about to unleash his broken, admittedly broken, admittedly ungodly wrath upon this poor man, but it goes like this. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the iniquity of the selfish in the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who, in the name of charity and goodwill, shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who would attempt to poison and destroy my brothers, and you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. This is very dramatic, right? Um, The first half of that was written by Tarantino. The latter half is the Old Testament. That is our God talking about wrath. Um, And that's how God sees sin. So here's the takeaway from all of this. You don't pursue wrath against your enemies because the Lord will lay his vengeance upon them. So, how are we doing? a lot. Uh, Nazis, God's wrath, the impending sense I'm laying the impossible burden of loving your enemies on you without any biblical guidance on how to live it out. Let's recap. We've learned that we are called to love our enemies as the Bible defines love. We learned that we must love our enemies just as our Heavenly Father does because we are His children and should follow His example. We've learned that vengeance and wrath belong to God, and he will pour it out as he sees fit. Hmm, wait a second. We have a conundrum, don't we? How can God pour out wrath on sinners, yet love his enemies who are sinners, and then adopt sinful humans as his children of God? Do you see that? Do you see how all of those things seem to contradict? How do you square all of that? That is the true beauty of the cross. It's why Christians for over 2,000 years have wondered at Jesus' work there. We can see it here in Romans 5. Let's walk through this together. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I mean, I can sit down right now, sermon over, right? Bring my pretty wife Danielle back up here in the band and just call it. I guess we should unpack this, huh? So remember, we're trying to figure out this mystery. How can God pour out his wrath on sinners, yet be loving to his enemies? and then adopt those same sinful humans as children of God? Well, in verse nine, we can see that we are saved from the wrath of God through justification by Jesus' blood. Jesus died for us so that wrath, remember great vengeance and furious anger, I did this so you wouldn't forget it, um, would be satisfied in his death, not ours. What about loving his enemies? Again, in verse nine, by doing this, God loves his enemies by saving them from his wrath, even while they were sinning against him. And then finally, the adoption. Looking at verses 10 and 11, we're reconciled by Jesus' blood. And then later on in Romans in chapter 8, the Bible tells us that for those who are saved, are led by the Spirit, are children of God. And that's why we cry, Abba, Father. Abba being like Daddy. Daddy. He is our Father. He is the one who gave us new life in Him. And now we get to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christ accomplished all of that on the cross. So that wrath that was earned by you, by you and by me, and our enemies, it can be poured into Jesus' cup. All it takes is for people to place their faith in Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross rather than anything that they would achieve or earn if you want to discuss this more for your life come and talk to me afterward Um, so in conclusion the million dollar question what does loving your enemies look like wrapped in flesh and blood in the real life of a believer a child of God how is this done you know when I look at this call to love my enemies it still feels insurmountable Uh, how about you but the, for those of you who are children of God, it's not on you to will yourself into loving your enemies, ah, gritting and burying. Oh, God, please, 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 please. You need to draw on God as your source uh, to love your enemies. So a great example of this is Corey Ten Boom. So her family died in the concentration camps. And what was their crime? Hiding Jews in their home. Somehow Corey survived. The war had ended, the camps had been liberated, and Corey was speaking in various churches, sharing about God's love and faithfulness, even in the midst of horror. And she writes in her best-selling book, The Hiding Place, it was at a church in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbruck. He was the first of our actual jailers I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was empty, emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he washed, has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people of Blumenthal, needed to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry and vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, please forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder and along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Here's the key. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. God is, so, is the source of our love, and his supply never runs low. When you have trouble loving someone, whether friend or enemy, ask God for the love you need. He will surely supply it, for it is in his very essence and will. So oftentimes when I think about this, doing it under my own strength, there's, I just don't feel like I can be successful. But with that said, I think Oswald Chambers, he has this great devotional. I highly recommend it. It's called My Utmost for His Highest. And it's two sentences, but I feel like it really is a great thought for you to walk out of here today with. Um, He says, The Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has altered my disposition and put in a disposition like his own. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. So now I hope I've laid out a clear biblical case for why you should love your enemies, how God will be doing the work in you to change your heart towards your enemies so that you can do the work of loving them. But who and what specifically remains? Let's revisit those manifestations of Christian love that we're commanded to follow and see how we can apply these to specific situations with our enemies. So the first one, uh, How can you love Vladimir Putin and his Russian soldiers? Maybe praying for Vladimir that he would come to know God, that he would abandon his war in Ukraine, recall his troops, know true repentance, and bow his knee to Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. The application here being not being resentful, hoping, that Putin would do the right thing, enduring all of the pain and suffering, being kind and being patient as our father is, ultimately hoping for Putin and his redemption. What about that abusive boss and coworker? Right? Pray that the Lord would release any feelings of resentment that you have towards your boss. I know I still carry mine. When discussing and agreeing on the work that you're assigned, asking genuine questions... To better understand their needs and intent and concerns, rather than merely focusing on advocating for your position first and foremost, an application of not insisting on your own way. And then finally, with family, be patient with them. Yeah, practice patience, pray for patience. Um, seek ways to support and serve them, again, without seeking anything in return. And don't resent them for spending the first year of their entire life sleeping in front of your closet, causing you to live around them while stealing your wife's attention. I told you we were gonna be real today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love our enemies so that they can come to know your grace. Our witness to you in simple gospel living by loving them can be more than enough for your spirit to save them. What better outcome could we seek than that our enemies become our brothers? That the venom in our hearts is gone and only love remains and your kingdom goes forward into another heart. Lord, I pray that this would be true of us and that you would shift our hearts Send us the love and forgiveness that we need to extend to our enemies so that we can get to the work you've called us to do, to love them, to bring them to know you, that they may be redeemed and join your glorious family. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.